Unlike many of the other conversations I have here, this one is presented as a cautionary tale, because today I'm speaking with Andrew Cohen, who, it's pretty uncontroversial to say, started a cult. It wasn't just a community of spiritual practitioners. It was a community that showed most of the dysfunction we expect of cults. And this group came to be known as Enlightened Next. And one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to Andrew is that I remember viewing all this from the outside 25 years ago. At its peak, I think Enlightened Next had something like a thousand formal students and centers in several countries. And then it all came crashing down in 2013. Now, this cult was not People's Temple bad or Heaven's Gate bad, but there's still some hundreds of people who feel that they were harmed by the time they spent in Andrew's company. The interesting thing is, is that I know enough about Andrew's experience, about the kinds of practices he did and who he studied with and the effect he had on others, to be reasonably convinced that he had a legitimate awakening and that he had direct experience of many of the things I teach in this course, right? And that he was producing such experiences in others. So he was not merely a fraud. And so the lesson here is more interesting and even paradoxical. And while I never studied with Andrew, his experience and the formation of his cult had an effect on my own practice because Andrew had been a student of Vipassana and had studied with many of the same teachers I had. And then he had quite famously discovered a guru in India named Punjaji, who became well-known because he repudiated all meditation practice. And Andrew had come away from this meeting totally transfigured, or so it would seem. And this story reached me, as it reached many others, and inspired me to seek out Punjaji myself. And as I relate in my book, Waking Up, and in some lessons in this course, meeting Punjaji had a great impact on me, even if I didn't perfectly align with what he was teaching in the end. And to give you a sense of the effect that Andrew had on the Vipassana community, and that is, again, the community of committed mindfulness practitioners, people who are sitting at IMS and at other centers and spending often months on retreat, I'll read a section of an account by Stephen Batchelor, who's a teacher who I've also spoken with for this course. He talks about what it was like for Andrew to come back after meeting Punjaji and begin teaching students. So Stephen went to see him, as you'll hear, in a skeptical frame of mind. Uh, and he retained that skepticism, but you'll hear how many people didn't. So this is Stephen Batchelor. What was going on here clearly had little, if anything, to do with what Andrew was saying. The teaching and dialogue were merely devices for building and sustaining an emotional bond between Andrew and his students, while the students experienced some sort of ecstasy by collectively projecting their spiritual longings and ideals onto Andrew, Andrew seemed to need the adulation of others to endorse the sense of being the enlightened guru he and his students wanted him to be. The more this interchange of mutually reinforcing desires went on, the greater became the certainty that Andrew really was the savior of our age, and the students his first blessed circle of disciples. As long as this bubble of shared conviction remained intact, everyone got what they wanted. I found it bewildering that so many of my friends were sucked into this solipsistic whirlpool, 
The Sharpham community emptied out until only my wife and I and one other person were left. The committee that ran Gaia House dwindled to almost nothing as trustees resigned in order to follow Andrew. People I thought I knew well ignored me. Being outside their charm circle, it was as though I were invisible. I would find myself in the same room as a group of shiny-eyed androids, but was excluded as they ranted on about their sole obsession, Andrew Cohen. For them, I was just another benighted soul who was unable to open to what Andrew was saying. I confess that there were moments when I had the terrifying doubt that rather than being the only sane person in a community gone mad, perhaps I was the last surviving madman in a community gone sane. Okay, so that was Stephen Batchelor, who, as you'll hear in my conversation with him, is a very experienced Buddhist practitioner. He'd been a monk for many years in two different traditions, and is also of a very skeptical cast of mind. But his account attests to the effect Andrew had on people when he came back from studying with Punjaji. And this is something that Andrew and I talk about here. But by all accounts, Andrew quickly became a spiritual tyrant, and his cult became fairly abusive. Again, this was not the People's Temple or Heaven's Gate, but many people came away feeling seriously mistreated. And some came away feeling they had benefited, right? So this is a very mixed story. But what's unusual about this, and this is really why I'm having Andrew on, is that once the wheels came off and the group essentially fired their guru, the guru apologized. And Andrew has now issued at least two mea culpas. I'll read you a couple of paragraphs of what he wrote to his students. As I was losing touch with my own simple humanity and everyone else's, I was also simultaneously not paying attention to the gradual growing of my spiritual ambition, of my spiritual ego. I believe that my intense longing for the evolution of consciousness in my students was real, but I've begun to see more and more clearly how over time my pride and my desire for fame and recognition slowly but surely began to blur and corrupt my vision. The worst part of it is that I was oblivious to the many different ways that some of my students were being pushed too hard and at times too relentlessly to make breakthroughs, and too often breaking down as a result. It's hard even now for me to grasp how I could not see this happening right in front of my eyes. The very human, frail, fallible, and vulnerable dimensions of myself that I was denying, I was simultaneously denying in those who had come to me for liberation. I was blind and ambitious, and yet sincere in my spiritual aspirations as a teacher and as a thought leader. The left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing much of the time. It was only a matter of time before the entire edifice came tumbling down, and it has taken me the better part of these last two years to begin to come to terms with all that has happened, and all that I have done. I realize that much harm has occurred, and that I am to blame. I justified my at times ruthless attacks on my students' egos as being akin to the revered Tibetan master Marpa's ruthless treatment of his famous disciple Milarepa. And at times this indeed was the case. There were times when, with individuals or groups of individuals, my arrow of discriminating wisdom hit the bullseye, and magic happened. Dramatic and meaningful liberating clarity and love beyond description emerged, and new potentials and miraculous possibilities that had been previously unimaginable and unseen were collectively experienced. 
In those historic moments, it all seemed worth it. But there were and have been too many moments where I simply have been wrong. Not only did my arrow miss the target, but it caused unnecessary pain and suffering to too many people. For this I am deeply and terribly sorry. Too much suffering has resulted from my at times misguided efforts to create breakthroughs. I should have known better. Okay, so, and there's a lot more that he wrote. So here's the rare case of a fallen guru who appears to have taken some responsibility for his fall. And as I say at the outset of this conversation, I'm not in a position to judge the truth of the many allegations about Andrew, or judge how much he's changed, or how sincere his apologies are. And it's certainly not my place to forgive him for any of this. Rather, I just wanted to hear his story, and hopefully bring some perspective on the risks associated with the traditional guru-disciple relationship. As I said in the lessons on gurus here, there are many paradoxes that students of traditional teachings need to be aware of. And while I've met and studied with many extraordinary teachers, I never saw a spiritual community that I wanted to formally join. Of course, part of the reason is that all traditional teachings are strewn with a fair amount of nonsense. And while I was not yet a scientist when I was making the rounds of various teachers in my 20s, I knew enough to doubt the veracity of many of the supernatural claims I was hearing. But the other reason I never joined a group of this sort is that I kept meeting people who appeared to be casualties of the Dharma. People who had put their lives on hold to become devotees of a teacher or his or her teachings, and who seemed to be doing their best to achieve a new form of childhood. Again, this dysfunction, or what appears to me to be dysfunction, was obvious even around the greatest teachers I've ever met. So there's certainly an argument to be made for taking the teachings and leaving. I mean, whatever is true, whatever is useful, whatever can actually help you free your mind, can't be a matter of devoting your life to living in physical proximity to a specific person or within a group. That's not to say these people can't be tremendously inspiring. As you'll hear, you'll hear Andrew and me talk about what it was like to be around Punjaji. But the dysfunction of being a part of one of these spiritual communities is all too common. Anyway, I thought it was a very interesting conversation. Andrew is a fairly unique case of someone who has clearly had real contemplative experience, produced that experience in others, created an impressive amount of chaos, and then has owned some, if not all of it. So make of this conversation what you will. I now bring you Andrew Cohen. I am here with Andrew Cohen. Andrew, thank you for doing this. My pleasure, Sam. So um, it's going to be controversial in many circles that I'm even speaking with you. So I think I should start by saying why I want to have this conversation. Because one thing should be clear is that you've just had a a fascinating life. I mean, you, you really have had an unusual journey. And it's one that is is filled with paradoxes or or apparent paradoxes. I'll just uh, kind of briefly summarize how I have seen you from afar and and why it seems worth getting you on here to to talk about your experience. I mean, first, you you appear to have had deep contemplative insights after meeting Punjaji in 1986, and, and Punjaji was a teacher of mine, so I have a sense of what happened to you there. And then you began to teach 
And many people found your teaching transformational and, and you, you had a, a very quick and powerful effect on a community of, of meditators that, that I was in, kind of in. I mean, it was, it was a little bit before I came into the, into the Buddhist scene, but I saw the, the aftermath of your tenure there. And so there was no question you were, were having a profound effect on people. But then a, a community started to form around you, which became really a proper cult and began to reek of the, the dysfunction that is often ascribed to cults. And again, I remember kind of witnessing all of this from afar because I was in, the, in this community of Vipassana practitioners, you know, which you had really you know, recruited from in, in many ways. And then the whole thing came crashing down in 2013. And what's most unusual about you, I mean, we've many people have heard stories about gurus who have kind of flamed out or, you know, had their their scenes unravel. But what makes you so unusual is that, that you appear to have taken some responsibility for this and have, have apologized for much of the chaos you caused. And I mean, now as to whether or not your, your former students accept your apologies, that's another matter. I mean, I think there's a petition of maybe 250 of them who, who don't believe you've changed and who don't think you should resume teaching. And I mean, I should just say at the outset that I'm not in a position to know what is true, I mean, whether it's about specific allegations or about whether or not you've changed. I mean, that's going to be for your, your former students to decide. But I thought we could have an interesting conversation because I really don't doubt that you had an authentic awakening, and I, and I don't doubt that you produced such awakenings in others. And I also can't doubt that you created some fairly extraordinary confusion and suffering while teaching. So there are spiritual and psychological and ethical paradoxes here to talk about. And so I just thought it would be fascinating to, to go through your, your life experience with you. Sure. Where would you like to start? Let's start with where you, what you were doing by way of, of spiritual practice, meditative practice, before going to India to meet Punjaji, what what were you doing around 1985 or so? I was. Uh, I originally had been very inspired by many, by so many people, by autobiography of a yogi written by Paramahansa Yogananda. So I had originally been initiated into a path of Kundalini Yoga by an Indian guru named Swami Hari Harananda, which was really chakra meditation and uh, trying, you know, is trying to awaken the Kundalini. And I, I was practicing very seriously with with him, and then one of the one of the people I met at his center in New York who told me that he'd been going to Vipassana retreats at Barry, where I think you've spent a lot of time yeah. also yourself, Sam. And he said, "You, we, you know, you can meditate for six or twelve to sixteen or eighteen hours a day there." And I went, "Wow, I never did anything like that before. I'd love to." So then I started going. I started going to Barry quite a bit, as much as I could, and. My practice really was pretty much Vipassana meditation. It was just sitting still for long periods of time and, and lots of it. And I, I was, before I made, went to India, I mean, I had made up my mind when I was 22 that uh, I didn't want to suffer anymore. I was tired of suffering. I couldn't stand it anymore. And that I wanted to be free. I wanted to be spiritually liberated. I wanted to be enlightened. I'd had a powerful experience, spontaneous awakening when I was 16. Very powerful. That was very unexpected because it just came from the came from out of nowhere and in this experience there was there was the sudden recognition that 
everything that I could see and everything that I couldn't see, everything that was manifest and everything that was unmanifest was, was conscious. And that the entire universe was, just to use metaphorical language, was one conscious being. And the, the nature of this being, this conscious being was a kind of impersonal absolute love that was almost physically unbearable to experience. And I, I fell into a state of awe and wonder. And this, I knew that this, these few moments had been the most real of my life. I had, a, I had an interesting revelation during that, during that experience, and I, it just became apparent to me that there was no such thing as death, and that all points in space were exactly the same place. And I didn't know what any of that meant. This, this, was, this was just kind of received revelation, whatever that means. And I, I never felt more alive, and never felt more awake, and never felt more vulnerable or in touch with life or reality than those few moments. And, that really became my touchstone. So when I became a, a seeker when I was 22, I, I knew that there was another side to reality, that there, was a, that there was a glorious, ineffable beauty and wonder to life and to reality because I directly experienced it. Many, many of the seekers I met along the way believed this was the case because of what they read, but they had never experienced it personally. So because of this initial experience of revelation, I knew, I knew that there was another side to reality. And so I, once I made up my mind that I was going to do this no matter what it took, I became very one-pointed. And that's when I started to, to, to practice meditation and go to see different teachers and gurus from very, various different traditions. But, but at that time, I was fundamentally doing Vipassana more or less as a, as a practice. The only, thing, the only thing that was, I remember at that time when I was going to a lot of Vipassana retreats, the, 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 there was two issues for me. One was that it seemed to be bad form to be speaking about enlightenment at that time. It just it seemed to be the, not the thing, the very thing that one shouldn't do. It was almost like, I can't think how to put it. It was, it was seen as, I guess, I guess it was seen as being arrogant. And I was always very interested in, in whatever that word meant. And the other, the other fundamental conundrum I went to India with was what was the ultimate nature of reality? Because, because this initial experience I had, it sounded very similar to what many of the great, you know, Indian realizers would describe in their experiences of enlightened awareness, of, of, of experience of fullness and of inconceivable love and cosmic consciousness. And this was very similar to what my original experience had been. But of course, when I was exposed to Buddhism and Buddhist ideas and doing many of these intensive retreats, I was learning learning that the ultimate nature of reality was, was emptiness and, and a nothingness. So I was when I when I went to when I went to India, I was very, very metaphysically preoccupied with what's the ultimate nature of reality. And I felt I really needed to crack this and that I had, I needed to know what the answer was to be clear what my path was going to be. And that's kind of, that was the state of mind I went to India. And how did you hear about Punjaji? How did you find him? A Vipassana meditator friend that I had met originally in India, who I had met again at a retreat I, I was attending in London, in, in Western England. Is this in the Totnes or? Yes, exactly. Had told me that a, a, a mutual friend of ours had discovered this extraordinary teacher named Hari Lal Punjar, Hari Lal Punjaji, and that I needed to go see him and that he'd been a direct disciple of the extraordinary Ramana Maharshi. And I felt I needed to go see him, but ironically, considering you want to go into the guru question, I was kind of fed up with gurus and teachers at that point. I was very influ- I was very much, at that particular time, very much thinking along the lines of J. Krishnamurti and, and in, in some ways the Buddha himself, you know, to be a light unto myself. I didn't want to get entrapped in, the, in kind of the magnetic, charismatic personality of a of another teacher, and I, I was very convinced I could do this on my own if I had the right, if I could, ha- if I had, the, if I was in the right environment, and 
had enough concentration. I was sure I could do it. But in any case, I felt I had to go see this man one way or the other. I made up my mind I was going to go see him. So then what was the, the effect of meeting him? Well, it was, it was, instantaneously, it was instantaneously profound. So I, I, went in, I went with my friend Murray Feldman, who took me to see him. And uh, he, he didn't have a center then or hardly anybody there. He was, he was living in his son's house right. in a small bed. He had a small bedroom upstairs. So I went in the room and uh, I sat on the floor and he was sitting on his bed and his, you know, he was a very, he was a very large man with the most extraordinary face and, 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 and huge penetrating eyes. But I wanted to let him know from the very beginning that I wasn't interested in getting involved in any kind of relationship with him. Mm-hmm. So I, I declared at the beginning, I said, I have no expectations to which he responded. That's good, you know, with, with great, with great power. And we got right into it, and the first, and we got right into it. And uh, me and my friend asked him, "How much effort does it take? Do you have to make if you, if you want to be free?" And then he, the, the great man, whispered. He, he he whispered. It was almost inaudible. He said, "You don't have to make any effort to be free." And when he uttered those words, which I didn't intellectually have any any sense of what they meant, I immediately there was a picture, there was a picture in my mind of water flowing down the side of a mountain. And I realized that that the, like water is ever 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 freely flowing and always unobstructed. So so the metaphor went in my mind, and I realized that in that instant, that my own true nature was like that water, and that unenlightenment was only a thought. And I had just been staring at the ground for probably about thirty seconds while I had this while these thoughts were running through my mind, and then then he shouted at me. He said, "That's it," you know. And I hadn't said anything, and I looked up at him, and then he burst out laughing, and then I realized that somehow he had been cognizant of this 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 inner, this inner process that I'd just been in the midst of and that was kind of the beginning of the meeting and I I didn't know what was happening I didn't I didn't understand really what it meant at that time that you don't have to make any effort to be free I didn't understand much of what he was saying but I realized see this was this was not an ordinary person that I'd met and and I spent 3 weeks with him I initially said I was going to go there for 3 days and then I was going to leave but uh, I spent three days with him, and we, I would go there in the morning and, and spend all morning with him, and then we'd take a break for lunch, and I'd go back and spend, we spent the afternoons together. And he was, you know, he had quite a wild personality, as I think you realize when you were with him. But during that, those, those first three weeks, he was, he was utterly kind and, and humble and sweet and generous, and, and he, he treated me in the most beautiful way. It was, it was like a spiritual fairy tale. And I asked, I asked him all the questions I had, and this question of, of what's the ultimate nature of reality, is the ultimate nature of reality fullness or emptiness, which no one else seemed to be able to answer. He said, that's very simple to Andrew, they're both two sides of the same coin. And when he said that, this was an enormous metaphysical relief, I could, I, and I somehow let go of this huge burden I've been carrying. And, I, and when, in this, during this three-week period when I was with him, I, I would go from thinking, this is the most extraordinary man I've ever met in my life, to this is some crazy, deluded old man who doesn't know what he's talking about. Why does he keep referring to himself as the master? He kept telling me about these incredible stories and reading me letters from, from these letters of quite extraordinary spiritual experiences and episodes from people who spent time with him and telling me one bizarre and amazing and incomprehensibly, almost like spiritually, spiritual uh, science fiction stories of amazing experiences he'd had. And it was all just too much to believe because I'm a very rational rationally oriented person but at the same time he was so he was lit up with 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 a, with a kind of energy and with a kind of spiritual self-confidence that I'd literally never seen before and so I I would go in and out of of of, of, of a lot of doubt of thinking he was crazy and deluded and then thinking he was he was wonderful and beautiful and I was the luckiest person in the world 
And I kept a diary during this time of what was happening while I was there, which I, which became my first book called My Masters Myself. Yeah. But anyway, to make a long story short, right before I left, I, I decided after three weeks I was going to leave, and I said I'll come back, but I wanted to go visit some friends of mine. And he said, Andrew, when I leave, when you leave here, something very big is going to happen to you. And and this made me doubt him even more because I thought, how could he possibly know what's going to happen to me when I leave? But he said it with utter doubtless conviction. And I didn't believe him, and I didn't know even how to believe him or even what it meant. And I remember the the um, when I left him, when I when I finally said goodbye, when I was walking away, I, you know, I, I walked, I was like half a block away, and I turned back, and he was he was smiling and waving and just laughing. <laughs> so it was quite wild. And then I, I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what was going on. And then I went to, well, there's one, one more small detail, which I guess would be important since you teach meditation. I'd been a very, when I, when I went to him, I had really let go of everything in my life except my practice of meditation. I was practicing like four hours a day, and then I'd let go of everything else in my life. And when he told me on this first meeting that you don't have to make any effort to be free, which I didn't understand what it meant, the first thing as I did is I went back to my hotel room and I sat on my bed and crossed my legs, and I suddenly got this huge headache, which I never got headaches. And I suddenly realized, I burst out laughing at a certain point, I realized that I was now, I was somehow in, I was somehow under his auspices, or I was under his guidance in some mysterious way already, without even having consented to anything. But I somehow realized that without even knowing it, one could say that I was disobeying what, what he'd said, because I was, I was sitting in my bed and doing my practice and making the effort to focus my attention and meditate. So I burst out laughing and then I just decided to drop it. You know, I just decided to let go of, let go of any notion of effort or practice whatsoever and just to be with him and so see what happened. Mm. But anyway, so I hadn't been meditating for those three weeks at all, which had been my habit. And then I went to the train station in Lucknow and I sat in the car of the, um, I sat in the car, the train car and there was nobody else there. And I suddenly realized that I was engulfed by this, this metaphysical presence and this powerful current of energy running running th throughout my body and around my body, and there was the there was the, the, the feeling of love the, and feelings of love and bliss and ecstasy, and wonder and joy, and amazement, and mystery just completely overwhelmed me. And I, I wondered what's what's happening to me. I've never experienced anything like this. And then I, I began to realize that well, this is what you wanted, you know, because I was also terrified. I was thrilled. And I was quite terrified because this wasn't this wasn't a joke anymore. This was this was nothing I could even control. This was much bigger than me, and it was it felt like the rug had been pulled out from under me. But I realized I said to Andrew, "This is what you want. This is what you wanted so badly. This is what you've been seeking for, and now it's happening to you." And and I just I just let go. I just I just surrendered, and I was I, this kind of metaphysical process, which was engulfing my entire being, would, would continue to wash over me with great intensity, and I would immediately flip into an altered state of consciousness, into the state of wonder and, and ecstasy and, and, and joy. And then it would, it would die down, and it would disappear, and then I'd wonder if it had ever happened or if I'd imagined it, and then it would come back, and the same thing would kind of happen. And then, uh, you know, I went to Delhi well, and I... Andrew, before you continue there with the, um, the adventure, I just want to kind of echo some of the, the claims you're making about what it was like to meet and study with Punjaji because he was a truly extraordinary person. And in some ways, I have a kind of an unusually clear view of that because he continued to impress me even when 
I didn't want to be impressed by him. Even when I was studying with Dzogchen masters whose teaching I thought was, was truer or, or better or more complete, when I would go back to see Punjaji, I was just bowled over by his presence. And scientifically, I'm kind of at a loss to account for the effect he was having on people. I mean, it was I, I, I came to see him several years after you were there. I think I, I think it was 91 or 92 was the first time I met him. It was still quite a, a small scene. I mean, he had not yet been discovered by the, the orphans of Osho's community. So, I mean, there were, there were probably maybe five people in the room when the five of us showed up. So it was, a, it was still a very intimate situation with him. And he, um, I mean, one, one variable was that he spoke perfect English, right? So you're not dealing with the translator. And so that allowed for, you know, unbroken eye contact with him. And he had these extraordinary eyes and, and made just unrelenting eye contact. So that's part of it. But there was just a kind of induction into his energy that people experienced where it was it was very common to sit with him for an hour and I mean th those of us who had spent you know months on meditation retreats you know at that, at that point I had sat you know a, a three-month retreat in IMS and I'd sat many one-month and two-month retreats and I mean I can attest that sitting with him for an hour felt like sitting for a month on retreat and I just you know I have no idea what the the physics of that situation is but it, it's just it, it was something that was happening and it would happen even when I was critical of what he was saying right <laughs> where I was not actually a a true believer in what he was teaching and how he was teaching it and so I, he was incredibly useful for me we'll get into some of the perhaps the, the points of criticism we may or may not share about what he was teaching but I completely understand the experience you had of, you know, staggering away from his house, feeling this onrushing of energy and bliss and and unconditional love. And I mean, it's just it was it was really like, you know, an MDMA slash you know, <laughs> mushroom trip being with him. Indeed. Yeah. So so what happened was that I went to Delhi and um, and I was in the midst of this kind of metaphysical upheaval and I. I met a, 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 a girl who I'd been on one of uh, a retreat in India with, a personal retreat with Christopher Titmus. I met her, and then I, we went to her hotel room, and I started telling her about these extraordinary three weeks I'd spent with this extraordinary teacher. And as I was sharing my story with her, she began to be absorbed in the same state of consciousness that I was in, and that really knocked me for a loop, because I didn't realize that I was actually transmitting like immediately. And I remember she she became she went into such a profound. She transcended her ego so profoundly that she became very scared of the vastness, so to speak, that she suddenly found herself in the midst of. And I actually saw her ego responding with, with, with fear and anger. But I, I wasn't teaching her anything. I was just simply telling her a, stor a story about my own experience. And this had really, this was something else. And then everybody I met in those first couple of days, I just started telling them about what had happened to me. I wasn't teaching anything. And, and, and I, suddenly I was the center of attention. The same energy started flowing through me and entering into other people. And then people started treating me differently. And then I went up to Rishikesh and I, I had a small group of friends there. And suddenly I, I, people were treating me with, with, with reverence, with respect. 
and I, I hadn't assumed I hadn't assumed any kind of teaching role of any kind. This was just all very spontaneous. But suddenly, I was in I was in I was in that position. Very miraculous. But, but hadn't had Punjaji told you that you would now go off and teach? Because not yet. Not yet. Okay. Because he because I mean one, one different experience you had is I mean, being very early with him. You hadn't yet seen that he basically would deputize anybody who had had. No, I thought a lot of that, that was quite, experience. I, I thought a lot of that was quite crazy because many of the people that he would encourage to teach, from my you know narrow perspective, I guess, didn't didn't seem like they were in any position to do anything like that. Yeah. So I, I I just I thought his judgment was was not always accurate to say the least. Right. So so but he hadn't said anything like that to you yet. No. I mean, he he'd been praising right. me. You know, he'd been praising me in in different ways. Right. But basically, I, I spent this spent this magical three weeks away from him and and with other people, and then I suddenly was this 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 powerful current of of energy of consciousness, just to, just to put it some way gave me access to a level of wisdom and insight that I that I clearly hadn't worked for, at least not in this life. I just, I just suddenly had access to knowledge about enlightened awareness that, w- that was just there and present when other people were sitting in front of me. And it started streaming through me very naturally. And, uh, and what was surprising even to me at the time is that there was a very easy and natural way that I seemed to be able to embrace kind of a, a level of authority very, very overnight and I, as I said hadn't really been earned there was suddenly a natural authority that I was just carrying and it was all very easy very natural and very spontaneous and um, I didn't understand how this had happened I mean I knew that I'd spent three weeks with this extraordinary man and this was happening but it was it was so overwhelming every day every day I woke up overwhelmed and, and, and more and more people kept being touched each each and every day and the, the miracle just kept developing. So after three weeks, I went back to him, and I had been very suspicious of all this touching the feet business, even though I knew I'd been to India, you know, for quite a while. By by a certain point, by that time, I'd been in India for quite a while, and I, and I knew that that was the that was the appropriate way to show res- to respect not only to to gurus but to you know elder elderly people. But I literally fell at his feet. It was it was like a it was a classical story. I fell at his feet and burst into tears. Because I couldn't, I, what was happening was so completely, absolutely overwhelming and unexpected and just magical. And he burst in, and he burst into tears, as you, as you know, he could. Yeah. And then for a short period, for a period of time, he, it was kind of a, it was a spiritual fairy tale where I was the chosen son. And it was very beautiful, you know, it was very beautiful. And then I spent time, then I would spend time up in Rishikesh where I, where I was teaching myself with my own students. But, uh, the relationship between us began to change after that. And the things, you know, I went off to Europe. I was invited to Europe initially to England, and I, I began to travel and then started teaching. And it grew very quickly. You know, within a few months, there were 150 people around me. And I was the center of this kind of ex- explosion of consciousness. And people knew very quickly, apparently, what was happening was people realized very quickly that they wanted to follow me. You know, they wanted to be with me. And people wanted to be with be with each other. The people wanted to be with those other people who were who were sitting with me, and it took off very quickly. But but also during this time, my relationship with him started to change a bit because I I, I think that um, well there was it was very comp it was it was, a, it was a complex breakdown of of, uh, of our personal relationship which I can go into in more detail if you'd like, but I I, I started to have problems with the 
with the Advaita teaching itself, with with cer- certain aspects of its absoluteness, I felt I felt they weren't applicable for. I felt even though, from a certain point of view, there was it was it, what he was teaching was absolutely true. I thought I began to discover that most people needed time to practice, they needed time for contemplation, they needed time for introspection, right. they needed time to get to understand how the mind worked and how their emotions worked. Well, to, just to drill down on that a little bit, so what Punjaji was teaching was that, I mean, he was teaching the steepest possible Advaita, that is non-dual path, where he was not giving any concession at all to the role of effort or deliberate practice. And this is this is unlike Ramana Maharshi, his guru, and many other teachers, he, he was just, basically he would say, either you, you understand what I'm saying right now about the primordial nature of consciousness, or you're lost. And if you understand it, you'll understand it instantly and permanently, and there, there'll be no further work to do. If you think there's further work to do, if you think there's any practice to be done to stabilize this or to get back to it or to I mean, just to reorient to it or anything, if any, anything in that direction is your concession that you're unenlightened, it's, it's more of the illusion. And again, there's just consciousness is this way always and already, and you either recognize it or you don't. And then, so the effect of this was, so many of us who had been making these deliberate and, and striving and, and fairly dualistic efforts to transcend the self through Vipassana practice mainly, felt this this kind of criticism of our efforts to be fairly exhilarating, especially coming from somebody who seemed so transfigured himself by you know whatever process he had been through. I mean he was again as an as an advertisement for what enlightenment could look like, he was a fairly <laughs> compelling one. And so it was just, it was a super steep path, but one of the consequences of it was that anyone who would raise their hand and say, I got it, you know, or anyone who would burst into tears in his presence, maybe there were some exceptions to this, but, you know, I I literally saw, you know, a dozen people at least more or less given his blessing to go off and, you know, spread their teachings to the end of the earth. And, you know, that part seemed quite dysfunctional because many of these people were clearly not enlightened. I mean, they just, you know, some of them were kind of floridly neurotic <laughs> or grandiose and, and you know, destabilized. And, you know, or some were like like me. I mean, he, he more or less said the same thing to me, but it was clear to me that I was not stable in this thing, right? This would come and go. And so I, I wound up taking very much the, the Zogchen view of it, which is that, you know, this is though you can glimpse this truly uncontaminated, even unborn quality to consciousness, you have to be honest with yourself about just how much of your waking life you're spending observing this about the the nature of mind, and how much time are you lost in thought, and what are you like when you're lost in thought. And in my book and on my app, I talk about the very clear case that illustrated the liability of Punjaji's way of teaching here, because we we actually one of the people he had celebrated when we were there. I was there on a trip with Joseph Goldstein and other seasoned Vipassana teachers. Uh, we spent about a week with Punjaji, and then we went to to study with Tukurg in, in Nepal. And and one of the people that Punjaji had celebrated that week went with us to Nepal, you know, fully enlightened to uh, just kind of get her enlightenment signed off on by, by Tuka Organ. And, you know, he he deconstructed it in front of everyone in, in a fairly, 
amazing way, which, you know, uh, he actually got through to her. But I mean, she just, she, this woman was extremely happy, extremely, you know, blissed out, but, you know, lost in thought all the while. And, you know, she just didn't have enough mindfulness to actually recognize that. So in any case, when I'd heard about the conflict between you and Punjaji around these issues, around that you were demanding of your students more rigor and more, you know, honesty about where they were at and and admitting of the, the, the utility of ancillary practices. And I saw Punjaji's reaction to this, that, you know, this is a total breach of protocol and the teachings and, you know, you were doing immense harm. I saw it from two sides because, I, you know, at this point I was convinced that you were running a cult and that, you know, that something fairly unhappy was going to result. But your criticism of Punjaji struck me as true. So I was really, I was, on some level, I w- was of the mind that, you know, he was right about you and you were right about him at that moment. So I mean, just to give you that, well, that perspective. That might have been a very, co- that might have been a very cogent insight. I've often thought, mm-hmm. I've often had similar thoughts about it myself. But there were there were other there were other things that were problematic, which were that, I mean, I saw a lot of my own students when they were sitting with me would would seem to enter into an enlightened state. But I, I because because a lot of people were were spending a lot of time with me, we were spending a lot of time together, I was getting to know people pretty well, and I started to see that they weren't really living up to the level of of clarity and transparency and emptiness that they were experiencing in their highest moments by 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 any stretch of the imagination. And that's when I realized at a certain point. That everybody had to do the hard work, and that there was no, there was really no shortcut to this. And that, and that's when I started understanding why, you know, for thousands of years, spiritual masters have had their students do practice because it takes time. It takes this takes this takes time for most people to really learn. And the other the other thing that I found most problematic, and and you know, in Buddhism, there's the distinction between absolute reality and relative reality, what they call the two truths. So I. I felt that uh, too many people who'd been with Punji were declaring in a most na- ridiculously naive way that they no longer existed, you know, mm. that, that, that their separate self no longer existed at all and, that, and that, they, that they were only a manifestation of the absolute. But it, it, was, it, was, it was such an exaggerated, reductionistic, two-dimensional understanding of, what, of, of, what, of, what, of at least my understanding of what that means and, and in a way that no, that no human being I've ever met could even live up to it. And I, I just I found this was it was crazy because I knew I knew it wasn't true and I knew that it, it wasn't just dishonesty it seemed delusional to me mm. and and I was and I emphasize we have to make a distinction between absolute truth you know that which is absolutely that was that which is absolute or transcendental reality and relative reality we have to learn how to honor both because they're both part of the whole picture and I think of, of, and interestingly enough Sam my my own teaching, you know, which ultimately became evolutionary enlightenment, was really born out of a dialectic with with Punjaji's radical Advaita Vedanta. It was me struggling with me with my concerns and my questions and my criticisms of the of, of that absolute position that I started developing a teaching that involved effort and choice and things like that and conscious the use of the use of will and discrimination and things like that. I just thought it was absolutely essential, and that was part of the reason that we parted ways. Okay, so what happened in your community? So I, I should just flag that there's a fair amount of material out there about this. There are books that have been written, even one by your own mother. There are websites that, that list your um, indiscretions as a teacher. 
we can run through some of this. I mean, you, you wrote an open letter of apology to your community. And again, I think there's there's probably some daylight between what you admit to doing and what you were apologizing for and what some of your former students allege. How do you summarize the problems in your community? Well, I hope so. And we can also speak about some of our, our successes and our victories, not just the problems. What, yeah. what, I, what I find difficult for me personally right now that I'm teaching again is people seem to only remember, understand what went wrong with my community. And a lot of things went very, very, very right. There was a lot of extraordinary and profound work we did together. And I can explain what those things are. But, well, you want to start with what went wrong? I'll set it up a little bit more and then I'll get your take on this. But because I've read a bunch of this stuff, I've read some of these books, I've seen some of these websites. And here's the conundrum. There's a paradox of teaching here, which every guru and surrounding community winds up coming up against. And it's that basically, if you as the teacher do something that causes your students to suffer, it is always available to you as a teacher to put it on them and their egos as the true mechanism of the suffering. There's almost, I, I can't think of a community that has a, a true guru assuming the role at the center that hasn't fallen into this. But when you look at what it was like to be with Trungpa or Dalavananda or any of these teachers, there's this recurrent appeal to some principle that's, that's often described as crazy wisdom, where, I mean, you're basically, you're, you're deliberately, out of your compassion and wisdom as a teacher, making your students uncomfortable. And, you know, this can run, you know, in, in the literature, you know, in the Zen literature, this can run all the way to, you know, cutting off fingers, right, and students get enlightened. But as I've said before, you know, this seems to only really work out in the literature and in the real world, certainly in our lifetimes, the liabilities of teaching in this way and the, and the, the doubtfulness of many of the claims for you know, enlightened motivation on the part of the teacher, it's just all too easy to see. So, I mean, in, in the context of your community, there's, I mean, the one thing you seem to have escaped, or at least I haven't noticed it, no one is alleging that you were sleeping with your students. No, it's a line I know. I know the line I never crossed. Right. So that's that's unusual. I mean, that's that's one of the first things that a guru seems to fall into. But nevertheless, many of your former students claim to have been traumatized by their association with you, and there were you know wide reports of physical abuse, you know, slapping and punching people either from you or or getting your your students to do it. There are reports of women being forced to do prostrations in a freezing lake to the point of hypothermia. That, that actually, that's that nobody did prostrations in the lake. They, but anyway, we can okay, get into well, that. I mean, I'm just going to run through some of this because it, it seems okay. irresponsible not to. But then, you know, we can talk about it. There are reports of financial exploitation where your students were told that the only way to get back into good standing with you and the rest of the community would would be to make offerings of many thousands of dollars. So you were essentially selling indulgences, it seemed. There was actually a story of a, a mock amputation where you had a doctor prepare to amputate a, a student's finger only to stop at the last second, but the psychological effects of this sound like they were pretty negative. There was you know, the breaking up of couples where you, you know, two people would be, would be married or be boyfriend and girlfriend and you would separate them and, and tell them to sleep with other people. 
I never, I never put, told people to sleep with other people. That's not okay. True. Well, then, so, but do you admit to breaking up couples? Well, I, I, not specifically. I think if we should talk, I think it, I'm fine to answer all these questions, but we should speak about the context in which all this kind of stuff was going on. And I, and I want to, but the thing I want to, want to flag is that it is always possible, and, and in fact, in almost every case, true that the associated suffering with these events is a matter largely, if not entirely, of your students' egos. I mean, and this this could extend to crimes that, you know, you, you wouldn't have committed. Like, you know, like, why don't you want to sleep with the guru and or have the guru sleep with your wife? Well, it's because you're, of your attachment and your jealousy and your neuroticism, right? A truly free person would see happiness, you know, on, on all sides of this intrusion. I, I, would, I wouldn't ascribe to that, Sam. My point is there's no obvious stopping point once you get into the business of really drilling down on why someone is suffering. You know, so it's like, I mean, just take, uh, let's take it off of you for a second. So you have, so have someone like Dala Vananda, right, who I'm sure you're well aware of. You know, he was producing truly brilliant, but then, you know, increasingly idiosyncratic teachings that, you know, had him and his, you know, bodily person more and more at the center of everything, the cosmos included. And he created, I think, by any description, a, a cult around himself. And, you know, by all accounts, was sleeping with anyone he wanted to. And it was always available to him to say to his student, listen, can't you see that it's your own inwardness and emotional hang-ups and attachment that's keeping you from wanting me to sleep with your girlfriend? Or <laughs> And let's just grant that it, that that might be true. There are so many other ways to instruct people. Like, why ever go in this direction but for your own your own desires and your own, you know, grandiosity? No, I, I, completely, I, I completely agree with you. A lot of those stories seem to be more about him being able to do whatever he wanted to do with every, for his own pleasure. And, and I think that it's very difficult to justify that, period, spiritually. I completely agree with you. Well, so, so what if that was operating... For you, I mean, so I've, I've just read a kind of a litany of claims pulled from some of these books and websites. Let's talk a little bit about the context. The context. I mean, we can drill down on, on the individual events if you'd like to, but without discussing the context in which this kind of stuff happens, it doesn't really make any sense. It all just sounds like total madness. And um, I mean, there's a couple of things, just to speak in, in general, and a couple of things that I've learned, which is that the identity of the guru, the guru identity emerged in a, in, in, a, in a mythic time in history, emerged three to four, five thousand years ago. And at that time, it was believed that the, an, a, a human being who had had a profound awakening, a profound spiritual awakening, who, who a profound enlightenment, so, so powerful and profound that if you would spend time in the company of such an individual and spend time in their presence. And if, and if as a result of that, one's mind started to become very clear and one's heart began to open and one began to have ecstatic feelings of joy and inner freedom that were obviously a directly result of that association, it was automatically assumed and believed that the realizer or the, or the awakened one or the adept was a perfected human. And I think this, this, has, been part of this, this, this has been part of a belief system it's been part of mythic religion and part of part of all the mythic traditions that there has been the ideal is that that when a 
when it, when a human being realizes a, a significant degree of spiritual attainment, when that becomes obvious, it is automatically presumed that, be, that because they have a certain degree of spiritual attainment or a profound degree of spiritual attainment, that they have become the, a perfect human or perfected human being. Like, and of course, there's a lot of mythic, there's a lot of myth, mythical and magical thinking around that, you know, which I know you also have grave problems with, which is that you know Jesus was born of a virgin and the Buddha was omniscient and things like that. So, so I think a lot of these problems stem from the belief in in the inherent perfection of the of the realizer or mm. of the guru or the teacher. And so, I realized in my case that uh, while I never thought I was I never thought I was perfect. I never thought I was perfect. I was very I mean in my own case I was very I went through a I went through a period uh, Sam when I was uh when I was a young seeker in New York and I started to practice celibacy because I wanted I I became a little disturbed by the obsessive nature of of my relationship to sexuality. I mean I didn't have any particular problems with it but I just noticed that me and most other men seemed to be a little obsessed with this subject and I became very curious about what it would be like to be free of this obsession. Hmm. This is before you this is before you met Punjujin before you started teaching. Yes, yeah, yeah, and I yes, and I, I and I started to practice celibacy, strict celibacy, strict, you know, the, the strictest kind of celibacy. And I remember I was with a friend of mine after 6 months and I said this is amazing. I've gone it's I've gone 6 months and haven't had an orgasm and I feel great. And I remember my friend looked at me as if I was crazy, but but this this work this working with celibacy gave me more understanding about how the, how the mind works and its relationship to our emotions than any meditation practice that I had ever done. So during this period of time, which had almost lasted three years of abstention, I realized that, that, my, that my mind was stronger than my body and my biological impulses. And so when I became a guru, very early on, very early on, I remember I was sitting with a large group of people in England. I opened my eyes when we were all meditating together and I went, oh my God, these people trust me completely. They would do literally anything I said. And then I, because I'd always wondered, how and why did Trunkum, did did people like Osho make such a mess? And why did other, why did so many other gurus make such a mess? And I realized in that moment it's because because they because this, because people trusted them this much. So I was very aware of all these problems. And part of the irony of my of my own story, Sam, is that I, in the earlier days of my teaching, I was basically speaking about all these problems very publicly, and the implication was that I was different, which I believed that I was. So my shadow developed early. My shadow was that I was the pure one and I was the pure one. And this was plus, this was plus the, the master t- made it, told me very clearly one day that I should never ever doubt myself. So it was a combination of this belief in, in, in the purity of my own motives, plus this never doubting myself, which, which set me up for creating problems later on. But part of the irony was that I was very disturbed by the stories of what happened around Trungpa Rinpoche, what happened around Adida, what happened around Osho. Even what happened around the great Krishnamurti, I found it very disturbing, and I felt that this was creating so much cynicism. So I wanted to be the one who's going to change that, and that's part of the irony of my own story. So the thing is that I think that that this belief in 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 my own purity was my own shadow. I I, I wasn't. There were there were in my role as a guru, I started to personalize some of my some of what was happening between me and my students and some when my students were struggling and failing at times i took it very personally instead of realizing that this this is they're, they're personally struggling struggling they're coming up they're coming up to the edges of their own capacities 
and it had nothing to do with me. But but I, I, at a certain point, I was so disappointed that I personalized and I got angry about it because I felt they were letting me and they were letting all of us down. And so that's what that's really what became a source of many of the problems that that came later. But it's not the reason that the community ultimately fell apart. But before we get to the dissolution, which I, which came in 2013, yeah. So you, you say you, you didn't view yourself as perfect, but you, you had at that point inherited this notion that an enlightened being should be perfect, or at least an enlightened being can do no wrong. I mean, I think, you know, you probably said as much as a teacher at various points. Well, should, should do no wrong. I'm not sure, but I couldn't do no wrong. <laughs> but you, you didn't consider yourself a yogi still working on the project of enlightenment. You, you felt that you were done, right? Yes, absolutely felt that I was done, absolutely. What does it mean to say that you didn't think you were perfect while also thinking you were done? Well, because I was very aware. I mean, as as you describe very clearly in your own work, I'm aware that the mind is the mind is crazy, and I could see that my that my mind was still as crazy as it had ever been, even though my capacities as, as a teacher were. I I was I could I could I was very I was also very clear, but I but I was I was aware that the, of narcissism the narcissism and the craziness that most people who grew up in our generation struggle with was still very much part of my own process but it but it didn't it didn't inhibit or restrict my capacity to to share consciousness with other people or share these or share teachings but that's still not a, a picture of you being fully enlightened that's just you being a good communicator of what might yet prove enlightening for others but you're you're i mean there's a kind of an imposter syndrome that should be creeping in there where you're talking about an experience that you have imperfectly actualized. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. Number one, I'd become an evo- and I'd embraced evolution as a context, so I didn't believe there was such a thing as as a full or complete anything. And when did when did that come online? Because that that certainly wasn't Punjaji's teaching. No, not at all. No, no, that happened. I I think that happened uh, as a result of my relationship with Ken Wilber, probably in the mid '90s, and I became mm-hmm. very very seriously interested in evolution as as a meta context for spiritual development. And so I realized that we were all that 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 higher human development was part of a per, was part of a perpetual process of becoming more and more and more and more conscious. So the whole notion of being fully cooked or fully finished, which is prevalent in in the in the, in the great traditions, was it was it was an outmolded idea. And I and I and I saw myself personally very much in that context. But uh, I and I had a little bit more of a sophisticated way of thinking about this because I felt that when one has very powerful transformative experiences and deep awakenings. One dis- one discovers a different context. One discovers a different context in which we exist, and it's a context that's free from the the the, the emotional and psychologically conditioned perspectives of the, of the of the personal ego or the small self. And it's and 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 and, it, and at its deepest levels, it's 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 free from the culturally conditioned values and worldviews. That 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 shape the human that shape our human minds. It's a, there, there's a there's a place of utter and profound freedom. So, so I I basically felt that, that what we what we want to shoot for is liberating our minds and liberating ourselves and liberating our egos from our psychological conditioning and from our cultural conditionings to such a point that the, that the, that the greater half of who we were that we that we we just felt that we would fundamentally cross the threshold. And I called it. I still call it the fifty-one percent threshold. When we are more, when we are more awake to, awake to this 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 deeper dimension of reality that's untouched by the mind, and untouched by culture, 
and the nature of which is freedom itself than we are by the mind that is deeply conditioned by by psychological experiences and by culture itself so that so i always say the goal the goal for all of us is to get to 51% mm. because when we get reach 51% we're 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 it's it's almost like a, another metaphor is who's in, who's in the driver's seat if if the, if the if the body and the mind and the personality could be seen as as a vehicle as as a, as a vehicle who's driving the car so in 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 our unconscious states which you describe very well in your in your books and in your and in your podcasts it's usually the the, the conditioned ego and it's 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 a part of ourselves that's that's almost as you've made very clear almost completely conditioned but we don't even know that we're conditioned and that's that's a big part of the problem being conditioned is is not as much as a problem as not even knowing that we're conditioned is is the problem so mm. so i so in my teaching i say the goal is to get to that point where the part of us that begins to wake up and begins to realize oh i am completely conditioned is to is to strive to get into the front seat of the car and get his, get his or her hands on the on the on the wheel of the car gets in control of the car and the uncon- un- unconscious deeply conditioned self is no longer driving the car and then the so then the ego's in the back seat so it's still there you know the the, the 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 personal psychologically conditioned self and culturally conditioned self is still there but it's but it's no longer blindly driving the car you know to into oblivion it means now i mean it means now there is this greater consciousness this greater awareness this greater depth and 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 inspired and awakened cognition so but the the fact that you can get to 51% doesn't that suggest you can get to 52 and 53 and onward to 100 that, that that well I, <laughs> I don't know if it's possible for, to get to 100 but that's the, that's the whole idea and that's and that's as I would teach once we get to 51% we want to continue to strive to continue to awaken to get to 60 and beyond absolutely but i see part part of what had been very confusing for me for me Sam had been in my meeting with master punjiji i had had this idyllic time with him in these 3 weeks and he'd given me everything that i think uh, one human being could ever give to another i felt like the luckiest person in the world but then after that period of time i spent with him and i and i would go back and spend time with him i started to see that at the level of personality he could be quite crazy mm. quite narcissistic quite emotionally self-indulgent in ways that i at the time was was shocked and i went through a period of disillusionment and so i this was part of my own real realizing that profound enlightenment as you as you saw yourself in him can coexist in the same body mind and personality with with a, with an extreme at times extremely un, unintegrated personalities and i went oh wow and then as i started to think about many other examples of profound awakening in my own lifetime i started to see this this was this was more often than, than not the case and that the whole situation was very complex and i and i never i i've never met anybody that i thought was fully cooked even even since that time but i'm just wanted to tell you the irony of my own situation is that i that i saw myself as being the the one who's going to heal heal this divide exception, and yeah. heal the cynicism and then i ended up doing the very opposite and that's kind of the, that's the difficulty that uh, that i want that i'm in, in the, that i'm trying to rectify right now so yeah so when you apologize for your missteps here what are you apologizing for well i i actually i saw people as means to an end rather than ends in themselves and that that was part of the problem i didn't i because of because what had happened to me when i met the master had been so effortless and so easy and so spontaneous and so dramatic i didn't understand why at different times some of my students were struggling so much to come to terms with their with their own shortcomings or with their 
with their ego. I, I didn't understand because we were, we were all living in such a rarefied context. And so there was a, there was a lack of, there's a lack of empathy. There's a lack of an appreciation about what an enormous challenge it really is to face oneself and to come to terms with oneself, especially in a context like the one we, we were living in. And so, so I feel, I feel, I feel this was the worst, this was the, the worst offense was, was lacking empathy and not, not appreciating or not being in touch with how much at times some people were, were really struggling to, to come to terms with their own with divisions within themselves. Right. But I mean, I mean that doesn't quite get at the, the color of this lack of empathy. Because I mean, the, the, the accounts that, that have been written about this time is that there was so much humiliation involved. I mean, there was like a, a totally toxic quasi-political environment where it was not only coming from you, but your, you know, your students themselves would become oppressors. And then, you know, they would discover that even, a, you know, a high status student, you know, after e even, you know, after having spent all this time being encouraged to bully others would, would suddenly discover that they could be vilified and banished. And then they would be made to grovel to become accepted again in the community. And it was just like the, the churn around this variable of humiliation and ostracism, you know, it has a, a fairly well-known cultic dynamic, but it sounds like no, you I were agree. at the top I, of I this. agree. The, wor the worst thing that there was a lot of shaming going on, and that, and that was probably the worst part of our culture, and it started with me, and I, and I feel ashamed, of, ashamed about it. It should have never happened. But I, I just want to say, and this is true, and there's no excuse for it, and that's the end of that, but the the one thing that the hearing about all these stories out of context doesn't leaves the most important part of the picture out of out of what we're looking at here because we we were living in a in a context that was very radical and it was admitted very radical and when people when people came to me they knew that I was that I was making this up as I went along and they saw this as a sign of purity not as a sign of madness and so everybody was jumping into this fire there was a, there was a fire burning in through me and there was a fire burning through all of us. And it was thrilling and it was exciting and there was a sense that you know, we, we were overcome with the utopian idealism and anything that and that all things seemed possible if we could just if we if, if we could do the work. And of course, as you know very well, and I think I was listening to a podcast of yours this morning, you know, ultimately for me, the significance of enlightenment over over time became less about the potential for the the, the unique individual to suffer less, but the potential that what we can share together if we can if we can live life at a higher level and so i and so this was what i was constantly working for was to get everybody up to a much higher level and i kept seeing what would be possible if we could do that and so so we made a lot of mistakes i made a lot of mistakes and there was too much unnecessary suffering absolutely but i i, I want i want to just say that this was done within a context of, of an atmosphere of enormous enormous vision of the possible and 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 it, it was a lot of a lot of people stayed with me for so long because because they were in touch with what we were reaching for and and the thing is if we, if we only shed light on on my failings and our failings as a community we we lose we lose touch with with what what it is that we were actually reaching for we were reaching for a capacity for human beings to come together beyond separation in kind of in in, in a metaphysical context that is actually extraordinary and we actually did succeed in doing that we had, we had many great breakthroughs, and one of the most important breakthroughs we had happened on July 30th, 2001. 
because I'd had a vision, Sam, and this, this vision happened sometime around the second year I was teaching and I was a group of people in Amsterdam had invited me for lunch. And I was witnessing two, two people having a conversation who'd been coming to sit with me every night. And I realized what they were sharing between them, what they were sharing between them was more important than what they'd gotten from me because they seemed to be, they seemed to be com communicating, communicating in a context of enlightened awareness they'd promised an extraordinary potential for humanity. And, every, and ever since I saw those two people talking, I started to have a vision of, of an enlightened culture. It was, I think, in Mahayana Buddhism, it's the land of Shambhala. It was a utopian vision, which, which often happens in situations like this. We're reaching for utopia, inspired by an evolutionary impulse, which, which, which promised the possibility of heaven on earth. And that's what Osho was reaching for, and that's what a lot of these powerful teachers were reaching for. Of course, everybody everybody yeah. failed, but when I'm trying to- Except when I'm you start to... putting botulism into the salad bar at the local diner and stockpiling weapons, you know, you've, you've got a problem. I agree, yeah. it's, so, to, it's totally insane, but but but, I, but I'm trying to say that, that, this, that this kind of inspiration comes alive, comes, often comes alive and has historically come alive in, in these different contexts. And so what the inspiration yeah. is to create heaven on earth. And, and, and then of course, over and over, we 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 fail tragically, but but not always. But I want to I want to just explain that a, a lot of of a lot of what a lot of what was lived, and the reason a lot of people who were with me did so much practice and worked so hard, is because they were so awake to this possibility and were willing to, to give so much to it. But yeah. we made many mistakes, and I made many mistakes, for sure. Well, so all of this was going on for years, and then. What caused the community to unravel in 2013? Well, what caused the community to unravel was my pride, on which I'm not <laughs> proud about. But what happened was that I had, I, even though I had been embracing a lot of a lot of ideas in an evolutionary context, which is a very modern and postmodern context for enlightenment, I was truly an evolutionary. I, I still, we, you know, our teachings were all about the evolution of consciousness. I very much saw my own role and my relationship with my senior students and my close students very mythic. So in the traditional mythic context, when you surrender to a spiritual guru or spiritual master at the deepest level, it is assumed and presumed and mythically that you're going to be together forever, as, has, as, in, as is the case in, in Buddhist contexts in the East and yoga contexts in the East. So I was assumed that my closest students who are my closest friends were gonna be with me forever. What I failed to realize was that we were all children of the postmodern revolution and that that kind of submission and surrender and love and devotion and commitment to a teacher and my students were very devoted to me and loved me very much was, was gonna eventually run its course and that they, they were all going to mature at a certain point and, and individuate, need to individuate at a higher level. In order to do that, they were going to have to leave daddy and leave the nest so they could become who they needed to be outside, outside, my, outside being under my authority. And so when my, when my senior students began to, began to develop in this way and began to become, began to individuate and began to become self-actualized in their own right, you know, as, 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 as mature adults, I couldn't see that their need to move move away from me was it was a sign of maturity and health, healthy, healthy, higher growth. 
I unfortunately saw this as an act of betrayal, betrayal of our mission, betrayal of our relationship, and so and which which was a great failing of mine, which I'm ashamed of at the moment. And I I felt betrayed, and I got very angry, and so, so a group of them wanted to speak to me because they started realizing that some things weren't weren't were in disarray, weren't as they needed to be with our organization. And they felt things needed to change, and I wasn't available for that conversation. And so, so there, the anger that grew up around that disagreement, eventually blew, eventually blew up. And I want to make it very clear that the dissolution of of Enlightened Next really had very little to do with many of the the examples of pushing people too far that you brought up, even though they're all true. Mm. That's not that that's that by, by a lot of that stuff hadn't happened for many years, by you know for for ten or fifteen years before the end. That none of that stuff had been happening at all. That whole that that pushing people very hard and pushing, working with groups to make big breakthroughs, big breakthroughs had, had come to a halt a long time before that. We were actually thriving in in many ways as a community. But the, what what tore us apart, ironically and painfully, at the end was this: was my not seeing that my senior students needed 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 to individuate outside my outside this relationship with me that I was unfortunately unable to appreciate and support. And a lot of anger built up around that, and then there was a big there was a, there was a big confrontation, and then I agreed to take some time off to to face myself and to look into a lot into a lot of this. And then then very shortly after I after I after I said I would take six months off, people start you know some of this senior students started leaving, and then the, the ground started to fall out from under us. And and there was a the dissolution happened within three months. It was all over, which was quite shocking because this has been a very Close community that had taken you know twenty more than twenty seven or twenty eight years to build. So there was how many people were in the community at that point? Well, I think there was about three hundred people who were, who who were who were very much officially with us, but there was probably another two hundred who were more local, more loosely identified with us. Mm. And what was your experience at that point of it falling apart? How did how did you feel, and what what process did that put you through? Um, I. I, I felt like I was dying. I felt I felt like I was I felt like I was dying. I was experiencing a level. I experienced a level of grief and despair and terror and confusion that lasted for about three or four years with with great intensity. I mean, my life's work had literally crumbled before my eyes, and I saw. I also saw so many so many people who had been who had been awake. In many profound ways, seemed to, a lot of people seemed to have lost touch with the very thing that we were sharing, and I found this unbearable. And I also, I also was um, took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that I had somehow catalyzed this, 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 this such a crisis that to cause such a catastrophic result at the end was was utterly un, was utterly unbearable for me. And it took me it's taken me a long time to come to terms with it. So then, how how were you viewing your own? realization in light of that i mean if you're many of us have viewed spiritual practice contemplative practice meditation insights into non-duality as a direct antidote to suffering so if you're miserable in a durable way and your your insights into the nature of consciousness don't break the spell where does that leave you well i'm also a human being sam and my heart, my heart was completely broken. So I, 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 I don't really know what, know what more to say than that. But I know as I, be, as I began to recover emotionally from, 
the shock of what had happened, that the that the that that the, that the light and the clarity and the way and the and the powerful inspiration began to return, and I realized that it hadn't had not actually gone anywhere. It just it had been it had become buried under the, under the, the dark clouds of my own confusion and suffering and despair. And I mean, I I, I literally had I literally had uh, you know the world the world I had created had literally turned upside down in a matter of in a matter of a few months and uh, and I had you know it was unexpected it was unanticipated nobody expected that to happen and it, it took me a while to come to terms with it and I, I've done my best to I've done my best to respond as fully as I've as I've been humanly capable of to all of my students and I've traveled all around the world to reach out to different people I went to probably seven or eight countries and I started teaching again about two and a half years ago and um and the 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 same fire and passion to share the light of enlightened awareness is still very much alive in me and it's alive in a place that's really that exists beyond beyond my own mind but for what it's worth people who people who know me well feel that I've that I've become a very different kind of person they feel I'm a much a much softer person and a much kinder person many people told me who who've come to see to come see me teach and be with me who I've known over the years they said Andrew you used to scare me and I, and now now I, all I feel is love for you. So so there's been a great humbling process and I think Sam in my own case I think the the enormous suffering that I have personally been through over this last period of about 6 years has awakened me to the Buddha's first noble truth which is the truth of suffering itself which I realized I'd been very out of touch with because ever since when I met the master I I, been, I hardly suffered at all ever, ever since I met him and A lot, the majority of my conscious life was an experience of incredible joy, incredible bliss, incredible freedom, and most importantly, a powerful and profound inspiration of what's possible for human beings, what we can do together if we really want to. I mean, I, I was always it was the it was the light of inspiration and sharing that inspiration with other people that was the was the most prominent part of my own experience. But I think falling so deep into my own suffering had awakened me to the truth of suffering, and I had. a very powerful experience on my 60th birthday when i was i'd been i'd i'd gone out on a on a whaling on a, on a on a on a boat from boston harbor with my wife to watch to go whale watching and afterwards we came back and i was sitting in a hotel drinking coffee and i was overwhelmed with this feeling of great despair and suddenly something cracked it was i felt this crack in my heart it was it was in my heart and suddenly i became aware for the first time in my life of the nature of suffering the truth of suffering as an existential fact which is part of the part and parcel of the reality of sentient existence that suffering is a part of life and i suddenly i suddenly i suddenly at least felt you know felt i saw i saw i saw that i saw that and this was and it was the truth of suffering is an un, it's an unbearable truth because it's an inconsolable because it's inconsolable because so much of biological life involves unthinkable suffering and so much of emotional and psychological so emotional psychological life involves unthinkable suffering for all sentient beings. And so there were there was a kind of there was a coming face to face with this truth that kind of brought me to my knees because to be honest with you being an evolutionary I never understood the Buddha's first noble truth I and I'm embarrassed to say this to you but I said why is he going on and on about suffering all the time? Why are Buddhists spending so much time speaking about suffering because the awakening to enlightened awareness is the awakening to joy and the and joy and and, and freedom. and 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 awakening to our infinite potential and i didn't i didn't get it 
and I, and, and so it was only very much late, very, very late in life that I had this fundamental awakening to what the Buddha had been pointing to the whole time that I'd missed in a very profound way. And so this is this has uh, awakened my own parts of my own humanity that I, I had been that I had been buried. You've mentioned evolution and an evolutionary view of enlightenment several times. What do you mean by evolution in this context? Well, what I mean is that um, is that uh, I mean I know in your in your book you mentioned Sri Aurobindo, but you didn't seem to be very ca- captivated <laughs> I, I, I by his ideas. Books, no. Well, so well, well, I'll just tell you what I discovered, and then yep. you can make, make make what you will out of it. But in the, I I, dis, I discovered that the that the master revealed to me the, 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 this depth of being of timeless, formless being, the awakening to timeless, formless being, or what Eckhart Tolle calls the ground of being. And this is what my in in my understanding, this is what the Buddha pointed to as as the deathless or the uncreated or the unborn. This is this. We could call this the deepest dimension of reality, that that exists prior to time and prior to space, prior to the Big Bang, and I think that. Um, Perg- See, that, that's a move that I don't make. I mean, I you know I follow you perfectly up until that claim about linking the first-person experience of non-dual awareness to cosmology. I mean, this is this is when I when I debated Deepak Chopra. This is where we we this okay. is the kind of thing we would would disagree about. I just don't see the need to ever do that. So it's my understanding, and of course I can't prove it. I can't. I can't prove it. So I can't. Can't prove. I can't prove it. But it. But I. But I'm relating this. This. This deepest. This deepest dimension of reality, related to this. This deepest experience of meditative awareness, where, which is, which is this nirvana consciousness. And I think I remember reading that Ergen Tulku described this as empty cognizance without an object. That's what I'm, what I'm speaking about. So, so, so it was access to, to access to this kind of depth that Master Punjaji awakened in me or revealed to me, and this was what I originally was pointing people to. Now, in what's called the second turning of the wheel of, of, of the in, in Buddhism, in, in my understanding, and I'm not I'm not a, I'm far from a Buddhist scholar. There was there was the discovery I think by Nagarjuna that in fact. The emptiness that, that that the Buddha had discovered was the ultimate nat- the nature of form, and the ultimate nature of form was emptiness. And so that points us to the to the Heart Sutra, where this is a declaration that form is emptiness and emptiness is form. And this is the awakening to the n- ultimate non-dual nature of reality, from an absolute perspective. Are we together so far? Yeah, it's, it's just there's the experiential, you know, phenomenological basis upon which to talk about these things. Well, I, want, I, want, about... I, I want to get to that. I just need to go right. through one or two steps first. Yeah. It's just that it's very natural to conflate. I mean, and in a, in a pre-scientific worldview, everyone naturally conflated what they could experience with what was real outside of the the frame of experience. And you know, it's been our progress in walking back that confusion has been fairly hard won over several centuries. And so, so I'm just, as you know, in in my on the other front on which I talk about these ideas, where I'm kind of pushing back on religious dogmatism. I see there's a, there's a kind of new age belief system that, that gets kindled in people that's very much a, a direct inheritance from Eastern metaphysical claims that are that could be viewed purely experientially rather than, than metaphysically. Fair enough. Absolutely fair enough. I, 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 let me just finish the thought. Mm. I'm just trying to make a distinction between, between what we could call the, the, the Buddha's original experience of nirvana, 
which which my understanding of his for his initial experience of nirvana is 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 a state of conscious realization when the mind disappears the body disappears the awareness of time disappears and it, when time disappears the awareness of the world disappears the awareness of the whole universe dis- disappears so that that would be the his 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 initial experience of nirvana so in the second turning of the wheel of the dharma there was this realization that the ultimate nature of form is that same emptiness that the buddha realized in this in his discovery of nirvana and so this was the discovery that nirvana and samsara the world of form and emptiness are one and not two and so in that context one wouldn't necessarily have to leave the world in order to have have this kind of recognition or experience mm. one would just have to recognize what the ultimate nature of all of all matter and all life was which was ultimately emptiness so that would be the second turning of the wheel where form and emptiness are one and not two where samsara and nirvana are seen as the same so so then with this discovery of evolution which is maybe what 160 years old now it's very recently in human history that human beings have discovered that we're part of a developmental process that had a beginning in time so then we could say that the third turning of the wheel would go something like this it would say that form is emptiness and emptiness is form and the world of form is evolving the world of form is evolving which means it's going somewhere and so so the in this evolutionary understanding of what I'm of, of, of enlightenment I'm speaking about awakening to a state of consciousness to an experience in consciousness when we directly experience this creative momentum that is not separate from the energy and intelligence that created the universe and is creating it right now but experiencing it at 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 a, at a, at a fundamental level at a metaphysical level because how I like to explain this is if you if we want to know what the evolutionary impulse is we we just have to focus on what the sexual impulse feels like and what is the sexual impulse feel the sexual impulse is 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 the is the creative is the, sorry is the experience of the creative fr- friction that that inspires us to give rise to new life the sexual impulse feels like ecstatic urgency ecstasy and urgency and that's that's the just drive towards creativity which the uni- universe is one big expression of 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 a drive towards creativity so that's at the biological level But then human beings of course at a much much higher level are not only driven towards biological evolution but we're also driven towards cultural evolution we're driven towards innovation human human beings we are seem to be compelled to innovate and to there's a drive within us to a compulsion a transrational compulsion that compels us to 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 give rise to that which is new it's the creative motivation it's the drive towards innovation which has created all of human culture and science and law and morals and everything else but it but it but what but what does a human being feel like what does a truly creative genius feel like what does mozart feel like or einstein feel like or any creative genius feel like when they're in the midst of this creative unfolding is there's an ecstatic urgency that is driving them to give rise to something to that which is new creative geniuses are usually feeling very much on the edge of some new great potential but not not at this case not, not at the lowest level biologically but in terms of all fields of human endeavor so along the same line of thinking my understanding is that the highest level the most profound and subtle expression of the same creative impulse in the universe is 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 when we human beings are compelled towards consciousness just in the way you and I have been i am i i have been and you have been compelled to become more conscious or driven it's not just a thought that comes i would like to become more conscious but people who are who are most inspired are compelled to become more conscious and and when they when we experience this compulsion we usually begin to learn how to meditate or do other do other things that are going to help our consciousness deepen and expand so it's my understanding that 
that the energy and intelligence that created the universe and that's creating it right now is trying to become more conscious through us and we experience the movement of this ecstatic urgency when 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 we when we experience this this spiritual inspiration and so and so and and that and this in in the teaching of evolutionary enlightenment i call this the awakening to not the true self but awakening to to because to the authentic self because the authentic self is is the is the human experience of that of that pure purely of this pure creative inspiration and when and when human beings are when we're awake to this pure inspiration the ego falls into the background the the relative mind falls into the background and we become in awake to a level of 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 inspiration in which we feel all things are possible not in a naive not in a naive way but there there's almost like a a a a fearless and passionate conviction in the possible and so it seems in those moments that the, that the very that the very this very evolutionary drive or evolutionary yeah drive behind the creative process itself begins to awaken to itself and become self-aware in the human experience in a in a context like this and so that's so so this is my in, in my understanding this this is a, a a new form this is a new form and a new expression of enlightened awareness that is very specifically creative and so this is why i make a distinction between between what i call being timeless formless being and becoming is a being enlightenment and a becoming enlightenment and in both these states of enlightened awareness the is is, is why well, one awakens to an egoless context but but one one is the one is the one very much that you have been speaking about about being being awake to the infinite nature of the present moment which is what a lot of people are speaking about and one is always being is being awake to the as yet unmanifest potential of the next moment and the next moment and the next moment and and, and in that context one's attention is being is compelled and captivated always by the as yet unmanifest potential of the next moment that 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 can come into being and will come into being if we nurture it. Well, I think it would take us too far afield for me to interact with all of the claims, explicit and implicit, in what you just said. I mean, I think one thing I think we agree on is that I mean, what what makes life worth living for most of us most of the time is not limited to recognizing the non-dual nature of consciousness. I mean, there's an immense amount of creative work necessary just to maintain civilization and live happy and healthy lives or or even just not starkly miserable and uh, unhealthy lives. So there's a lot of work, and, and a lot of this work is ethical and institutional, and you don't seem to get that for free just by awakening to the kind of transformation in consciousness that Punjaji was was not not at all Sam, giving not out either. to all comers, right? So there's just there's more there's more to the project of becoming a, a self-actualized human than that. If well, if I if I could just add to what you're saying, the reason is and the problem is because in in the being enlightenment, the the, the, the feeling or the senses that everything is always already perfect as it is, everything is always already perfect as it is, and in the recognition of that, there's an experience of a fullness and a re- and a release. and one's being overwhelmed by the perfection of all th- of things as they always already are so in that kind of awakening there's no really awakened inspiration to do much about anything but in in the, but in the, in the in the awaken to this 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 current of evolutionary intelligence all that exists there is a is a yearning 
to make the world a better place, to to improve the world process. It's not coming from the personal. It's not coming from the ego. It's not coming from the personal identity. It seems to be coming through us, and that's yeah. what. And it has a very. And it feels very different. Not not to cause uh, branding problems for you, but I think creativity is a better rubric under which to think about this than evolution. I mean, evolution in in the biological sense invites some unhappy comparisons just because of what the natural world is. I mean, 99% of species go extinct, right? That, that's what <laughs> evolution is up to. And in terms of our evolutionarily inscribed impulses, it's not just procreation and, and you know, romantic love as a derivative. It's also outgroup violence, you know, tribal violence and oh, the, the ecstasies that, that arise based on successfully slitting your, your neighbor's throat under the right circumstances. And so... Well, that, while that's completely true, I, th I, I think it's also true that our, that our, our moral development as, as, as a species is, is, is also a profound expression of, of, of ev the evolution of consciousness. Because, because, because morally, as a, as, as a global species, Whereas, whereas there's still many problems and many things, are, many things other than we'd like them to be, right? I mean, this particular time in history, more in more ways than we can actually even begin to cope with. But nevertheless, there has been there there has been a, 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 a an awakening, a, an awa a awakening level of culture, cultural understanding, cultural context of of moral development that's been profound in terms of in terms of the fact that slavery, that the the elimination of slavery, largely women's rights and so many other things and in so many other ways that the world is a much more moral place than it was a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. And we still have a long way to go, but that's part of evolution too. Actually, that remains to be seen. I mean, I think it's it's in defiance of evolution narrowly viewed. I mean, it's, it's only part of evolution if it's leading to more successful procreation and survival and is being genetically selected for. And that, you can talk about the evolution of culture that's what as I'm a kind of a separate you know, operating system, which is, I'm persuaded, the, the analogy is reasonably good, although not perfect. But something like ecstasy is, unfortunately, it's orthogonal to ethics. You know, it's like I, I, there's no question that many suicide bombers, even most, feel some, some state we would recognize as ecstasy the moment before they, they detonate their, their bombs, right? I mean, there's based on their beliefs, based on where they think they're going, and that this, this is the culmination of a massive spiritual project. You can imagine somebody, you know, driving a truck bomb into a marine barracks, feeling very much the way you felt on the train leaving Lucknow, if not quite for the same reasons, if not exactly the same way in every respect, fairly similar to that because it's just, the ecstasy is just a, a mental state that can be provoked in, in, in various ways and for various reasons and some of which are socially and ethically pathological. That's a, just a, a problem we have to get our, our minds around because feeling good is not always a, an indicator that you're on a path worth walking. No, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly and, and, and the... And the uh... The terrorist bombers. I thought they were probably having fantasies of all the how many virgins they were going to be experiencing when they got to heaven. Yeah. So, but I agree with you. But at the same time, Sam, you know that when when we're working hard on something that's really important, when we're working hard on something that's really important that has that has great spiritual value and has great ethical value. 
we can experience certain kinds of joy and inspiration in relationship to that that are not related necessarily to anything pathological or destructive. So, oh, sure. You know, because so, so, so feeling, feeling good for the right reasons can also be a sign at certain times that we're on the right track, even though, even though I, I agree with you. I mean, whenever what you described as kind of ethnocentric madness, which is there's, there's too much of it in the world today, and there has been for a long time. But I, but um, to me, the, the 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 awakening, the recognition that, and this is in, this is this is putting the 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 create. Let's put it. Now, let's not use the word evolution then, but let's put the create the the creativity of the universe. When we when when we when it seems like, let me put it that way. Let me put like, when it seems like we're experiencing the creativity that is driving that is driving that is that is that is compelling the universe to exist at the level of consciousness. It, it, it feels like something. It, 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 feels like, it feels like there's a source of tremendous, positive energy and drive to improve the cosmos, to improve the universe, to make the world a better place. And in this state of consciousness, the being, being, finding ourselves confined in, this, in, the, in the small world of the small ego and the separate self, which you describe very eloquently in your book, is nowhere to be seen. Is nowhere to be seen. It's what I'm. It's it's part of a a, bodhi, a bodhisattvic motivation. At least it's my understanding and my interpret my interpretation of it. Because the bodhisattva, at least in my understanding of it, is someone who has found a a, 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 a drive, a, a spiritual motivation that is not for him or herself, but is for, is, for, is is for, is about the evolution of consciousness consciousness itself. And it's it's, it's an it's, it's an experience. Or a, dry, or a movement in consciousness that's quite that's quite selfless and very very powerful, and it's it's not about me or my enlightenment anymore, but it has to do. But it's about the evolution of consciousness of the whole species, and it's about a felt connection and concern for that, and that's kind of what I'm pointing to. So, in light of your experience thus far, you know, both as a as a student and as a teacher, do you think the the Eastern model of the guru disciple relationship is is just broken. I mean, is that is that a salvageable structure? I, I think that the, the mythic the mythic the mythic model of the of the guru disciple relationship is broken because it can't withstand the, the the glare of the postmodern lens. The postmodern lens is too sophisticated for it because it's the reason it's I, the reason most of these experiments have failed is because no human being is perfect, no matter how enlightened they may, they may actually be. And in most of these experiments, it was discovered sooner or later that the master was, was, was far from a perfect specimen of humanity. It didn't, didn't mean they didn't have extraordinary gifts spiritually, but they were not perfect. So when there was the discovery that the, that the, that the master wasn't perfect, there's, there's a huge amount of disillusionment. So that idea has to shift. And the other is the, other is the, is the whole notion of submission, submission to the hierarchical authority of the spiritual master, the spiritual leader. That can't possibly work in a postmodern context e- either, because because postmodernity, in order us in order for us to become who we can be, we have to become self-actualized, highly individuated, mature adults. And in order to do that, we can't give up our power to anybody for any reason at any time. We have to remain fully responsible for our own choices. So the traditional model, where the master is seen as being a, being a, a stainless expression of human perfection to whom we have to give up all our power and their, and their, their will be done. Not, not my will, but their will be done. And, then, and we somehow project this idea of our perfection on them where we believe that they know what's right and true and good about everything, which is completely ridiculous. 
So, but what I do, so that I think the old model for these reasons has to be has to be completely thrown out because we, because what enlightenment is all about, it's become it's much more complex. It's, it's apparently, apparently now we can see that it's profound spiritual attainment can exist with within a a vehicle, a human vehicle, that's still very imperfect and has got a lot of work to do. And a lot of people say, well, if if so and so is not perfect, or if they, if they have if they have if their fundamental flaws or shadows that have not been completely illuminated. And they couldn't possibly have access to enlightened awareness, but it's not—it's not actually true. So that, so I think in our definition of how enlightenment plays itself out and works outside of a mythic context, that—that's—I think that has to be redefined. And the other issue has to do with with us with with us never giving up our authority, never giving up our authority at all, for any reason at any time. And so, in, in most of these, the reason most of these experiments have failed, including mine. To different for differing degrees had to do with the, the fatal flaws of those two issues. What are you doing differently now as a teacher? Not telling anybody what to do. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Not telling anybody what to do. I'm trying to stay out of people's business. I'm trying to just teach what I teach, but I'm also being much more sensitive to people's to people's need to do things in their own way. To giving people to giving people all the space they need to find their own way. To find their own feel, feel their own way in a way that feels comfortable and most appropriate to them. You know, I before I, I pushed too many people too hard. I took, as I as I explained before, people's successes and failures way too personally. And I, yeah, I mean, I think those are some of the main differences. And also, I'm 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 much more cautious about myself. I'm more much more cautious about the fact that. As you make very clear in your world, in your work, we are all very, very, very remote. We're conditioned biologically, emotionally, psychologically, culturally, in so many ways that we can't even begin to become conscious of. And I can't even begin to imagine that any human being at any time in history, including the future, could become so self-aware and so enlightened that they could become aware of all the different multi-dimensional layers of their own condition. I can't imagine that. So, for that reason, I've become much more careful and much more cautious about myself. And uh, mm. much more tentative. It, I mean, my, I, I have confidence in what I have to in what I have to teach because it's powerful and because it can it can help people and can help to awaken people and it does very powerfully. But I'm much more there's a, there's this, there's a sense of of, of of caution of caution and care and I think even tenderness and vulnerability that wasn't there wasn't for, for for our shared for the predicament of our shared humanity and the challenge of being human, which wasn't there before. Not, not as it is now. Well, listen, Andrew, I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. It was fascinating in, in all the ways I hoped it would be, and I wish you the uh, the best of luck with everything. Well, thank you, Sam. I appreciate your interest very much, and I uh, appreciate how open-minded and intelligent you've been about this. So thank you so much. <laughs>